0: Tonight we're going to look at Genesis 15, it's an interesting passage, and before we get there, um, I want to introduce you to a word some of you might know, maybe if you're a history major, um, but it's a word called hagiography, has anybody ever heard that before? Hagiography. Um, What that is, it's something that takes place especially in history writing, and it's this, it's when a person is spoken about or written about in a very favorable way to where all of their positive things about their life are accented and any negative aspects of their life are usually not, not only like diminished but actually done away with. And so you might have read a biography this way. Probably all of us have read stories of people in which they're kind of made out to be a hero, everything great about their life, what they accomplished their character, is all broadcasted. But in a sense, you never really meet them as a person. Because you only learn about the heroic, the good, the character things they did. And in some ways, um, without thinking about it, you might you might kind of figure out, well, you've never actually met them as a person. Then since what's happened is they've been caricatured. And that's what hagiography is, and it's bad history is what it is. Um, it's bad writing. And I bring that up because, for this reason, that's something that can happen especially within the Christian world, but also in the United States, with people who are still alive today, we'll create... There'll be these real people that we don't know, or at least don't know very well, and we'll create this persona for them that somehow is amazing and we all aspire to be like, and it's not really them. Because they are real people that live real lives, and they interact into the difficulty and the good things of the human experience, just like the rest of us. Um... And so what happens is we've caricatured them, we've taken this person, we've made them into this hero that is no longer who they really are, and then of course what happens is now that we have this caricature, we all feel oppressed because we're like, well that's what we're supposed to be like. When in fact the person we're comparing ourselves to is actually not even a real person, it's a caricature of a real person. But now that we've created it, we all feel oppressed and out of guilt we start trying to be like this not real person that doesn't really exist but happens to be attached to the name of a real person. And I bring that up for this reason. That's not what happens in the Bible. There's no hagiography. There are no caricatures. And what I think we see over and over and over again in the life of Abraham is that God in Scripture, through the life of Abraham, but through all of the characters in Scripture, all of the people, understands the authenticity Human experience. And I hope that what you hear in RUF is that the Bible addresses authentic living, uh, the real messiness of life, that it's not sentimental, unhelpful nostalgia, it's not caricatures of people to where it's this oppressive image of how we're all supposed to be. Um, The human experience is messy. And the Bible speaks to that. And you might have had a couple of times in your life. Um, like I have, where men who you admired or women who you admired, and maybe you've caricatured in a certain way, in a moment of like deep honesty, revealed to you, like, I'm not really that different. One of the most important men in pastoring me and mentoring me and teaching me about what it means to be a man, just recently talking to him about his own marriage, and he just said, you know, I'm 14 years in, no, 16 years in now, and he just said, like, And I'm not changing into the husband I I thought I was going to change into. And you know what? My wife's not changing into the wife that she thought she was going to change into. And the reality is, now that he's knowable and more normal, his pastoral care for me is even more powerful. And I'm no longer oppressed by this image that's not reality. We need authenticity. We don't need caricatures. And that's what we get in the life of Abraham. Uh... We get somebody, we're not reading chapter 14, we're skipping over that, but I'll tell you what happens before we get to chapter 15 and I'll read the text. In chapter 14, when you read the life of Abraham, it's just up and down. 13, some bad things happen. Late in 13, some good things happen. In chapter 14, he's killing it. Like he's 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 winning. In chapter 14, these evil chieftains oppress a bunch of people that Abraham cares about. And Abraham actually lives out the male fantasy that all the guys in this room kind of wish we could live out at some point, which is engage in violence in the name of justice and peace, which we all kind of want to cut people's heads off like William Wallace and Braveheart and do it as a warrior poet who's fighting for justice and peace and all, all that is good in the world. Abraham lives out that male fantasy. He's killing it in chapter 14. He's like, he's winning. This is what we get in chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Fear not. I'm your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, one of the servants in his house. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and remember, my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, This shall be your offspring. And he believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, but how am I to know that I shall possess the land? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, laid them each half over against the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll be in judgment upon the nation they serve. And afterward, they shall come out of it with great possessions. And as for you yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, it was, a dar- it was dark, and behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch fa- passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your offspring, I give this the promised land, from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever." Lord, we thank you for your word, and um, as we encounter life, as we encounter the ups and the downs, I pray that here in the story of your servant Abram, uh, that we would see there is one consistent thing that can address our fears and our doubts. Be with us, dear God. Teach us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. Um, Several years ago, after Tom Brady's third Super Bowl, he had an interview, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and I'm going to read you a portion of his interview. This is towards the end of the interview, and it's really interesting that the interviewer on uh, 60 Minutes really gets caught off guard by it. This is what Tom Brady says. Why do I have three Super Bowl thing rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, I reached my dream in my life. And me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The interviewer asked him, What's the answer then? And he says, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. I love playing football, I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. And I bring up that interview because it illustrates, obviously, very powerfully in our culture, a very important point that I want to start off with. What are the most Distressing and the most troubling moments in life. Think about for the, think about it for a moment. The most kind of ex, the biggest existential crisis maybe you have. And what I want to suggest is that actually you're probably not thinking about the most distressing moment in your life right now. Because what I want to suggest, this is what's the case for Abram. This is what's the case for Tom Brady. Is this, that the most distressing and the hardest moments of life are actually not the moments of deepest failure that actually the most distressing moments in life actually might end up being the moments right after your greatest success. There's a, uh, a, a folk song from the 60s called Is That All There Is? And if you've ever seen this great movie called The Nines, with, um, I heard that song for the first time in this movie. And this song is sung by this woman named Peggy Lee, and I'm going to read you the verses. I remember when I was a little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced through the burning building out to the pavement. And I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, Is that all there is to a fire? When I was 12 years old, my daddy took me to the circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears, and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. As I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was all over, I said to myself, Is that all there is to the circus? Then I fell in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. We'd take long walks down the river and sit for hours, gazing into each other's eyes. We were so very much in love. And then one day, he went away, and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, Is that all there is to love? I know what you must be saying to yourselves, If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh no, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment because I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you that when the final moment comes and I'm breathing my last, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? And it's a chilling song when you hear Peggy Lee sing that song. But she's addressing the same thing Tom Brady and Abram are all demonstrating, which is this. The hardest moments in life is when you finally put it all together and then you run into yourself again. And you realize, I put it all together. I put together the roommate situation, the boyfriend-girlfriend situation, the parent situation, the school situation, right? We're all struggling to get this thing all together in life. And you might get there at some point for a brief moment and then when you get there, you'll figure out life's not okay. That's distressing is when it all does come together. And on the other end of it all coming together, Life's still not fixed for you, and you're keenly aware of it. You got all your wildest dreams, and you're still not okay, and you know it. So the question really is, what do you do about the fearful aftertaste that comes right after your best moments? What do you do when you've done your best and things have come together, and you have that moment that Peggy Lee says where it's like, well, is that it? Because a lot of us are going to get there. This is Stanford. Y'all are all going to get there, right? Y'all are going to put it together. You're very well made. Get the boy, get the girl, get the job, get the grades. And when you get there, Abram, Tom Brady, and Peggy Lee, I think represent a sentiment we'll all eventually feel like. Was that it? If we can arrange the circumstances in our life the right way and perform them well, we think that's going to be it. And if you get there, you'll find out it's not. This is what it is for me. Um, It's a little bit different now being on the West Coast, but when I was at South Carolina, we'd had large group on Tuesday nights. And large group is like a big deal for me. My whole week kind of rotates around it, the preparation and thinking about it and worrying about it all the time. And like uh, my favorite thing after large group, I can't do this now anymore, was calling my dad and talk to him on the way home and just talk to him about what I talked about and... He was always encouraging. He was actually always... Uh, it was helpful that sometimes he would even be critical because then I knew he was always telling me the truth. And um, and it was great. But there are nights when I come in and, and I had taught a large group at South Carolina and like, I just knocked it out of the park. Preachers think this way. Every now and then they think like, that sermon was awesome. Like, I brought it, you know. And there are moments... All preachers have thought this is a different time. Not every week. But every now and then, you know, you walk out and you're like, that's it, man. Like, that, I brought it. The loneliest nights at South Carolina were when my best sermons were preached and I couldn't get my dad on the phone on the way home. And I rode home for 20 minutes in silence. And I sat there like Peggy Lee, like, was that it? That's me. That's the best I could do. I couldn't do no better. And 20 minutes of silence just undoes me. And I was asking, is that all there is? What is it for you? Maybe you've had that moment. And there's some real good moments where really good things happen, but it never sticks and it never stays. And it feels like you got a glimpse of that's the way that life is supposed to be, right? What joy feels like, what finally being the right type of person feels like, but it never stays. That's a fearful and doubt filled moment. And the first thing that we have to learn from this text tonight is this for both Christians and non-Christians. It's okay to say, "But God." In those moments. In fact, it's even it's okay to say that in any moment. What I want you to see first tonight is that you can come to God with your fears and your doubts, and you can say to God, "But God, you said." That's okay. He can handle it. The first verse, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Before Abram's even voiced his fears, God knows where he is. And the Lord says, fear not, Abram, and he comforts him. I am your shield. Your reward will be great. Isn't it good news that before even Abram gets the word out, God is actually moving toward his doubts and his fears with tenderness. He can handle the doubts and the fears of his servant Abram. We get to Abram's fear in verse 2 and 3. This is the covenant, God's covenant promises he made to Abraham in chapter 12. He's saying, Lord, won't you give me, uh, uh, excuse me, Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And what he's talking about here is this promise in Genesis 12 that God was going to give Abraham an heir, and through Abraham he was going to become a great family and bless the world, that Abraham's children was going to be how God saves the world. And here's Abram, late in life, knowing, fearful and full of doubt. God moves toward him in tenderness. In verse 7, he goes back again toward him and he says, or excuse me, verse 5, he takes him outside and he says, look at the heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Abram, this is what your children are going to be like. This is how many you're going to have. And Abram believed him, verse 6. He believed him, and the Lord counted to him his righteousness. But then in verse 7, God says, reiterates his promises again, I'm the Lord, I called you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this promised land. And Abram again says, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? it in the New Testament, Abraham is set forth by the writer of Hebrews, by Paul, all over the place, as the model for faithfulness. <coughs> He is the model set forth all throughout the New Testament of what it looks like to have faith. Here's what we have. But God, you said. But God, you said I would have an heir. But God, you said I would go to the promised land. And we're even told in between those doubts, and Abram believed God and God accounted him righteousness, but then right after that, but God, you said. I would enter the promised land. We have a real world picture of what real world faith looks like when it's lived out. And it's okay to live it out this way. And uh, again, one of the things I hope you see tonight is this. Doubt is not wrong. Doubt is not evil. And in fact, it's okay to bring your doubts to God. And the reality is it's actually much more dangerous to be afraid of your doubts and then bury them because you're afraid of them and try to pretend that they don't exist than to actually bring them out and offer them up to God. What you need to know about Christianity, whether you're a Christian or not, is this. Christianity is not, you have to blindly agree to all these truths and no dissent or no doubt is tolerated. That's not Abram. That's not real life. This is Abraham, man of faith, and here he is with his, his, but God you said. And the Lord, the first sweetest thing is the Lord's just tender to him. And some of y'all have seen me as a good father, and some of y'all have already seen me as a bad father. More of y'all are going to see that. Hopefully, improving as a father. But, I mean, this is, this is parenting. Little girls saying, Can we watch Tangled? Right? Or can we watch How to Train Your Dragon? At like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And you know what the answer is? Most of the time, yes, after dinner. Right? What that means is, from 4 o'clock until 7.30, we're going to answer that question like 75 more times. 75 times 4, because each girl is actually asking 75 times. And man, I hope I can grow into the kind of tenderness that God has here with Abraham. Where he just takes me outside and says, Abraham, let me show you the stars in the sky. This is what your descendants are going to be like. Because what we do is the first couple times like girls, we are going to watch table. We are going to watch Tamele. And then like about 545 it wears off when they're just crazy at the table and they're not eating their food. And we are like, We might watch Tangled. I don't know if we're gonna watch Tangled. <laughs> and that's when they say exactly what Abram said. But you said, Dad. And you're like, oof You know? And you're like, I don't well maybe you forfeited your covenant promises. I don't know. <laughs> you can bring your the God you saids. To him. It's a good thing. You can say, but God, you said there was going to be joy. You can say, but God, you said that you had fixed the world. But God, you said that you would reign and sin wouldn't control me. You can say that. You can say, but God, you said that you were going to heal relationships. But God, you said the world's going to get made right and I was going to get made right. Those are okay. He can handle that. Abram's giving the same voice to the same fears and the same doubts. But God, you said you're going to make this right. That through my family, the world was going to be made right, I was going to be made right. You see, there's really, in the sense, there's two kinds of doubts there's believing doubt and unbelieving doubt. What I mean by that is this believing doubt wrestles and struggles and cries and prays and goes to God with a lot of but God you said. And it prepares for the answer. And faithful doubting has real questions. And it's taking your questions to God and seeking and struggling and wrestling with the answers. But you see, in that kind of doubt, you're still looking to God. Right? Unbelieving doubt doesn't. Unbelieving doubt ends up actually looking like either work or laziness. Which is, it looks like work, and by by that I mean this overwhelming need to try and control all of your circumstances... Because it, which, of course, is ridiculous because it actually will end up killing you, but it's like, God, I doubt you, so actually I'm creating another management plan for my life where I can guarantee for myself all the circumstances I want. That's what unbelieving doubt looks like. It looks like workaholism. The other thing it looks like is it might look like laziness. Disengaging from the struggle and disengaging from the hard questions and the difficult tasks in life and hiding your heart away and hoping that you can just kind of harden it enough so that you just won't have to feel the hardness of life anymore until it's all over. Right? This is Abram with his, but God you said, but God you said, I would be made right, that it would be made right, that there's the promised land, that my heir would save the world. And he's full of doubt and fear on on the heels of his best moments. Right? Why is it, and this this is the question, we have Tom Brady, we have Abraham, right? Why is it that getting all the circumstances in your life completely lined up won't make you feel right. Because that's what we believe by our workaholism. If I get all the circumstances in my life lined up, that I can feel right. And the reason is this, is because fear and because doubt are not about circumstances, they're about relationships. What Abram ultimately fears is this, I'm not right. This isn't right. God, you don't seem to be making it right. Will I be found to be the right type of person for you? Lord, am I going to possess the promised land, verse 8, right? And that's what we fear. At the end of the day, what all of this is like, what all of this is about, what all of our fears and insecurities are about is this, I'm not right. I know my lies, I know my public image that I've created, and I want to believe it, but I know it's a farce, and in my worst moments and in my best moments, there's a truth that we're confronted with regularly in both of those moments, and that's, I'm not right. The reason we have social anxiety on campus, walking into a room, preparing for the weekend, whatever it is, any kind of social grouping you think about, the reason we're terrified all the time is because we're afraid that we're not acceptable. Right? The reason we're freaking out about the attentions of the other gender and the companionship we're seeking but never seem to get or hoping to get or maybe are getting, we're terrified that maybe we're not loving. The reason we're killing ourselves with grades, with work, whatever it is, is because we're afraid that we're not legitimate. And that's how we can legitimize ourselves. All of our fears and our anxieties and our doubts tied to us not feeling right or tied to us not feeling acceptable or lovable or at peace. And what we think is, if we can get the right circumstances in order, that it will all go away. And all of this testifies to the fact that it's not true if you got everything you wanted in life. It wouldn't make it go away because it's not about getting everything ordered well in your life. It's about a relationship. Because what we want at the end of the day is somebody to see us, to see all of me, and to know all of me, and to look at me and say, You're acceptable. You're right. You're who you're intended to be. That's right. And we need it from somebody. We don't just need to get our circumstances together where we can look at our own resume. resumes. I did well. We need someone else to look at us and say, You did well. That's right. So you can invent all the apps and Facebook social networking sites you want. You can finish your PhD. You can make all the money you want. You can change the world. And at the end of the day, what our hearts are longing for is in somebody's eyes to be seen as the right sort of person. We want to be found to be the right sort of person. And we live in front of an audience. And maybe our audiences are different, right? Maybe it's in front of an individual or a group, a coach or a parent, a friend. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's a corporation. Maybe it's the entire watching world. You want... Somebody to look at you and say, that's all right. You are right. You're the right kind of person. You've done well. Right? And in many ways, that's kind of the problem that all world religions, that all world views are dealing with. Like, how do we just come to peace with, like, the human experience of never feeling right? And what you see in this passage tonight is really weird and really cool because it displays what's utterly and completely unique about the Christian faith. And it's how God proposes to deal with that issue. Because what He doesn't do is He doesn't say, Alright then, here are the things you need to do. This is the way you act like the right sort of person. And that's going to remedy your situation. He does something totally unique. This is what happens. God says to Abram in his moment of doubt, says something really weird. Bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he brought them and he cut them in half and he laid them over against each other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down in the carcasses, Adam drove them away. Abraham knows what's going on right now, but we don't. Jeremiah thirty four eighteen refers to this, talks about this type of ceremony, spells it out. Abraham and God are doing are performing a ceremony that was very common in the ancient Near East. We have other records that testify to this type of agreement. It's called cutting a covenant. That's what's happening right here. Abraham and God are cutting a covenant. It was a ritual treaty or oath that would take place. It was very common at the time. And the way this oath took place is there would be two chieftains or two kings. They would go to war with each other. One would win. One would lose. They'd create a treaty... And they'd ritualize the treaty when they um, inaugurated the treaty. And this is what they would do. They would perform this ceremony. And in that treaty, what they would do is the, the victorious king or chieftain would say, I'm, gonna, you know, I'm calling off the dogs. We're no longer invading you. You're now like my vassal lord that serves me. We'll protect you because you're a part of my kingdom. But you'll all now pay taxes to me. Right? And this is how they formalized their agreement. And so what they would do is they would cut the animals in half, and the two kings would walk in between the animals. And what's happening, the ceremony is called actually, there's a a technical term, a self-malediction. A self-malediction. And this is what they were doing. They would walk through the animals, and what they would do, uh, what that communicated was, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant... May I be treated like these animals. May I be destroyed. May I be cut in two. So it was, an oath, uh, it was an oath of self-curse. Like, you have the right to curse me. You have the right to destroy me if I don't hold up my end of the covenant. Again, Jeremiah 34.18 is a place that refers to it. If I don't hold up my end of the covenant, I forfeit my life. Now, I think it's helpful for a moment to picture how gruesome the ceremony is. Abraham has a cow and he cuts him in half, and a goat, and a ram. There's blood pooled for meters and meters around him. He's covered in blood. The whole point being like, now you see, if you breach the covenant, it's really bad. Because violence has occurred right here in a pretty massive way, and it's portrayed in a pretty massive way. Now, here's the most important detail in the text. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Smoke and fire are always symbols of God's presence in the Old Testament. Pass between these pieces. Only God walks between the pieces. Abram never does. Abram doesn't walk through. And God's doing something that's utterly unique. And He's answering our fears and our doubts right here. He's saying this: If I fail to end up to live my, to the end of my bargain, to bless you and bless the nations through you, Abraham, may I become like these animals. But Abram never walked through. And what God's also saying is this: If Abram, if you fail to act like my covenant people, and you forfeit your life, may this happen to me. God walks through the animals for both parties. He says, If I fail, my life is forfeit And Abram. If you fail, God is saying, my life is forfeit. I'll pay the price if you fail. All of our attempts to get rid of, to become the right sort of person, to get rid of what the gross inadequacy and the evil in us that we can't really get rid of, that we're struggling with, our lifetime of failed attempts, right? We're putting together a whole life of failed attempts. Reveal this. It takes blood to wipe away our sense of wrongness. It ultimately takes blood. The cost of making yourself right is much higher than hard work. The only way to wipe away the stench of our unfitness is blood, because we've forfeited the blessings of God. We've forfeited the right. And nobody can look at me and know all of me and see who I really am and say, You are the right sort of person. It's impossible, no matter how hard I work and we all know this because our whole life testifies to it, because we're working our tails off to try to put together that life's resume, and it hasn't worked and it won't work. This is God saying, when you find out you're not the right sort of person and that you haven't lived up to your end of the bargain, I forfeit my life. If you forfeit your life, God's saying, I'll pay the price this is the way one of my friends said it. It was God saying, Abraham, I'll make you righteous, I'll bless you, even if I have to be torn to pieces to do it, even if it costs me my life, your life won't be forfeited, mine will. This is what this means, right? Romans 8.23, He who didn't spare his own son for you, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? You see, all of a sudden, this actually really speaks to all of our but God you said, right? God saying, listen, I want you to know how deeply committed I am to you. I'm going to pay the price for your covenant breaking. That's how deeply I'm committed to you. I will give you my son. I'll sacrifice my son for you. And so what that means is, in the darkest moments of life, in the most powerful and the hardest, but God, you said, you need to know, He didn't spare His own son for you. You want to know why you can trust God? Because He gave His son for you. What more can He show you to demonstrate His commitment? Do you want to know what your faith is in? That He gave His son for you that His Son died in our place for our covenant failure and we didn't walk through the animals, He walked through us. You want to know why in the best moments and in the worst moments in life, all of your fears and all of your diets can be taken to Him and He can handle them and He can even wipe them away. This is the reason why, because He gave His Son for you, do you see how deeply committed He is to His children, even in our darkest moments? What do we, I mean, what do you do with the things that cost you the most, right? Your car, your computer, whatever it is, your your camera, your laptop. Whatever it's most dear to you and cost you the most, you take the most care to give your best to and to take care of, right? And to maintain. Right? That's natural. When things are expensive, you take care of it. God's not indifferent. And his people cost him more than anything else. If you trust in him, Lay your fears to rest. Lay your doubts to rest because at the cross your sin was taken away and that faith, His righteousness became yours and you are now right before God because He sent a substitute when our life was forfeit. And what that means is in all the difficulties of life, I'm not saying they're not still hard, but in all the difficulties of life what He's saying is you need to know I'm not distant, I'm not far away, and in fact I care deeply for you and I'm in control and if you don't believe me, look at the cross. Do you see what I, the extent I went to for you? It's God showing us how deeply committed He is to making us right. The question considered tonight is this. Y'all are Stanford students. Y'all are winning, right? You don't feel like it right now because the rest of the world, sometimes y'all feel like it. The rest of the world, they think, "Oh, Stanford students, y'all are going to rule the world. Y'all kind of think that sometimes too, Right? Be bold enough to ask, is that all there is? Because you might get there. Some of y'all might get there to that pinnacle, whatever it is the elite Stanford student standard for success. Will you be bold enough to ask, is that all there is? Will you be bold enough to cry, but God, you said. I'm at the top of my game, and God, you said. Right? I did it right, and I worked hard, I made good choices. And I still don't feel right. Consider that maybe there is, maybe more. And that maybe the way you become right isn't through working your tail off. Maybe the way you become right is by saying, God, did you walk through the animals for me? God, did you forfeit your life for me? And the answer is yes. And the way you get in on that is simply by faith. Let's pray.